Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, editor of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Karen D. Hamill of Halen Hardy about preventing heat stress in the workplace. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, editor of EHS Daily Advisor, and I'm joined today by Karen Hamill, a regulatory expert, trainer, and technical writer at Halen Hardy. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. And we're going to talk today about heat stress um, and and the workplace. And obviously, uh, it's been in the news a lot this summer. It's been a hot summer, probably the hot. I think the hottest summer that's ever been recorded. Uh, I think I read somewhere. But why has heat illness become such an important issue for employers? Well, putting politics aside, it's become a bigger issue for employers because. Let's face it, it is getting hotter out there. We've seen unprecedented heat waves throughout the entire United States and really throughout the world. So it's something that has been brought to the forefront. And also considering the demographics, our workforce is getting older. And as we age, that is a factor that employers need to consider because as we age, we're not able to tolerate the heat or the cold as as much as we were when we were younger. So those things together are kind of both playing into heat being a bigger issue that employers need to account for and need to accommodate for. So it's it's something that with, especially with the climate change and with things getting hotter and, and us facing these unprecedented heat waves, they're probably not gonna go away for a while. So it's something that as an employer, as a responsible employer who is responsible for the safety of their employees, it's one of those hazards that is recognized and that we do need to consider. And, you know, we've seen uh, states this summer, some states issue emergency um, rules, you know, rec- basically requiring employers to provide uh, breaks and shade and water and things like that. Are, are you surprised that there isn't a, a federal heat standard yet? This may sound a little jaded, but being in the safety world for more than 25 years, I'm I'm not surprised that there isn't a federal standard because I recognize how long it takes for OSHA to create one. With that being said, it's great to see that four states have already adopted those emergency practices and have already started to require that. And also there are a number of guidelines that are out there. OSHA has issued guidelines to employers NIOSH has the ACGIH, which is the American College of, oh gosh, I'm going to screw that, industrial hygienists. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sports organizations have issued them, a number of other organizations as well. The American Petroleum Institute, the Steelworkers Union. So there there are a lot of guidelines out there. uh, And I, I think this is just a good time for OSHA to look at that again. And there are actually two house bills or I'm sorry, a House bill and a Senate bill that have also come out recently. Both have been introduced, and if they're passed, they they will actually direct OSHA to create that standard. And what do you think should be in a a federal heat standard? I think it should be encompassing enough that they recognize both the needs of indoor and outdoor workers who are working in high heat and high humidity conditions. It should be something that allows the employer kind of kind of like a performance based other performance based standards it will allow the employer to look at those factors that are important to them so it's something it needs to be something that allows the employer to look at not only the heat index or the wet 
bulb globe temperature, but also the metabolic workload that the employee is is going to face and also any PPE. So it needs to allow the employer to look at all of those hazards, just like you would evaluate any other risk and then outline those specific requirements. I, I, I hope that it will include mandatory work breaks. I hope that it will include some of the other things that the that have been introduced in the bills, like having hydration, like having coaling shelters, like having mandatory scheduling, having or, or eliminating working overtime, because those things are all important factors when it comes to heat stress. So I hope that when, when and if a standard is passed through federal OSHA, that it's going to reflect that. And also some of the precautions that have been put into the state guidelines and, and the state requirements as well. There's a um, lot of great guidance out there. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. Um, what are some things if, you know, if you're uh, an employer, you know, what are some, th obviously the, I think a, a big part of this too is just recognizing the signs of heat stress um, can you just walk us through sort of, you know, what what employers need to recognize, you know, as, as they've got workers working in the heat? It's important to train both the supervisors who will be looking over those workers and also the workers themselves to recognize those signs of heat stress. So look for look for that buddy of theirs. Keep keep a buddy system going and look for that person who might not be sweating as much as other people or look for the person who's confused somebody who is just just doesn't have their mind on the task all of those initial signs the the more the, the sooner that you can recognize those signs and get a person help the less likely they are to have those higher incidents of heat stroke and and even death so i think it's very important to have that training element have it early and and keep it for for forefront in the people's minds. So do that weekly tailgate talk, maybe a daily tailgate talk if, if the conditions are right, just so people recognize those signs, even if they've heard it a hundred times. It's something that we we know through training that we need to hear it several times before it sinks in. So just repeating that and keeping it in people's minds that they need to keep an eye on themselves and an eye on their buddies and letting that ego go. A lot of people have that strong ego. Hey, I'm I'm Superman. I can I can work through this. I'm young. I'm healthy. I'm strong. So reminding people to let that ego go and to take those breaks when they need them and to take that drink of water when they need it. I think all of those things together are very important to remember. Are companies providing that that training? Like, is is it is it being done enough um, to get awareness out, up out there, or or is it still something that we need to work on? I believe it's something that we still do need to work on. When you look at the, the, especially early in the season before workers are acclimated, that it's something that I think we take for granted, especially if we have the same workforce year after year, we take for granted that they've been here. They know that it's spring. They know that it's summer. They, they know it's going to get hotter. They know it's going to get more humid. And we don't necessarily take the time to review that and say, hey, look, it is gonna be hot and humid here are the signs of heat stress. Here are the signs of, of somebody who, who needs help. So I, I do think we, we can definitely improve there to keep workers aware of that, especially when it does start to get warmer. Maybe maybe we, we can ease up a little bit in late August or September when, when we've been working in the, in the same climate for, for a long time, but 
I think we definitely need to take a look, especially for new workers and especially for, for those older workers or anyone with a health condition to make sure that they're not only aware that we keep refreshing that information. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, you know, there are certainly indoor workplaces that have, um, you know, a lot of heat, heat stress and, and risk of it. Um, you know, what are some sort of tips for uh some of the, what are some of the, I guess, what are some of the workplaces, the indoor workplaces that would have this risk and you know, what should uh, those employers be doing? Some of the more common ones, of course, would be places like foundries, places where they're making molten metal products, even steel working anywhere that they're, they're forming any kind of metal products. Um, other things that people don't necessarily think of, food processing areas. Mm -hmm. They tend to get very hot, especially if they're doing any kind of, well, well, when they're doing any kind of sanitation processes, anytime that you're doing any kind of processing or canning or bottling, those can be very hot processes. Even your general manufacturing settings where you're doing just miscellaneous manufacturing tasks, most often they're done in very large facilities with very high ceilings. So often you can put a fan in there to keep air moving which definitely does help but it's not practical or sometimes not even possible to air condition it or anybody working in older buildings where it's just not practical or possible to put in air conditioning or to increase circulation distribution centers packaging uh, people working in mail rooms large mail rooms sorting packages and sorting mail those, those are all kind of indoor locations that it just may not be practical to air condition or possible to air condition. So when, when you have those areas and, and it's not possible to air condition them, of course you can add controls like adding fans and increasing air movement, but they still do get hot, they still do get uncomfortable. So what can they do? I mean, obviously, you know, you can't, you can't do the exact same things that you would with an outdoor job but like what are some of the things that uh you know an employer can do in those indoor situations to uh to help their employees deal with with the heat when it beyond the engineering controls like increasing the ventilation uh shielding workers is another way to do it so you can actually put a in some cases it, it's not always just like putting in fans not always practical but shielding the workers by putting up a wall or putting up barriers you could also use cooling vests and that's something you can do outdoors as well but just having them wear wear a vest that helps keep their core temperature lower or as you would outdoors increase those rest periods allow them longer intervals to have a break somewhere that it is cool maybe that's a lunch room or a cafeteria or a break room something that gets them out and away from that heat and looking also at hydrating them, making sure that they've got enough water in their system, post those urine charts, make sure that they're following them, encourage them to reduce their caffeine and alcohol intake because we know that they're diuretics that will actually lead to dehydration faster. Look at people who may have medical conditions or who are on medications that could affect their ability to work there, possibly reassigning them or splitting those tasks so that people aren't doing that hot job for eight hours a day. Look for a way to rotate the workforce so that they're only doing it for four hours a day. It's still a hazard, but you're helping to reduce that. Um, and obviously all these things, you know, uh, I, 
I imagine employers have resisted them over the years because of the sort of impact on productivity. Do you see that, um, you know, that more employers are kind of giving way and, and, and you know, sort of allowing for these concessions to protect their workers? They're, they are starting to do that. And I think it's because they recognize that their, their employees are an asset. And, and that's something that safety has always struggled with production. And, and I believe they, they always will. But especially now when it's so hard to get new employees into the workplace, especially in jobs that they'll be subject to heat sensitivity. Let's face it, these are physically active jobs. These are people who are going to be climbing utility poles. They're going to be digging a trench or digging up the street to, to lay a new water main. They're going to be working in a production area. That's the, These are all labor-intensive, work-intensive jobs. So these aren't going to be the people sit, having the luxury of sitting in an air-conditioned office. So I, I think that they recognize that this is, this is a finite workforce and they're the, the the counter side is if you do have a worker who has that heat stress injury, everybody around him is going to be distracted while that while that worker, while that employee is receiving first aid care, is waiting for an ambulance to arrive. So so having that proactive mindset and allowing those breaks and preventing those heat injuries from helping or from happening is going to be something that actually helps you with production because you know that that employee can be on the job for even if it's only 30 minutes and they have to take a 30 minute break afterward because it's so hot and humid you know that you're going to have that production for 30 minutes as opposed to having a worker who has those heat stress symptoms and can't produce for 30 minutes or 15 or whatever that rate happens to be. But having that acknowledgement and knowing that if you follow this rules and if you do allow those longer breaks, you're going to have greater productivity. I, I know it's it sounds counterintuitive, but but it works. Um, you Earlier you mentioned heat index and wet bulb globe temperature. I was wondering if you could explain those a little more and why they're um, more effective ways to determine heat risk. Sure. Heat index is probably the easier of the two to understand, so I'll, I'll do it first. And the heat index was created, well, not created, but it's used by the National Weather Service. And it factors in both the, temp the air temperature and the humidity. And what's nice about that is humidity really does have a big effect on how hot it feels to someone. So if it is 80 degrees with 10% humidity in one area, it might feel very comfortable to, to many people. Whereas if it's 80 degrees with 80% humidity, that can be very, very oppressive, especially to somebody who's performing a, a very hard labor. So it combines those two temperatures and kind of gives you a real feel temperature. And a lot of uh, weather forecasters are using that now within the local regions to help people understand that it's it's not just the heat; it's the humidity. So it, so that's that's kind of the way the heat index. It's but heat index is factored for people who are working in a shaded area, and also people who are working with some kind of an airflow. So if the wind isn't blowing at all, and if you're working in direct sunlight, heat index is a is kind of a good low benchmark but it is something that you will need to factor in those other things and, and accommodate for. The 
wet bulb globe temperature actually factors in a few more variables. So it factors in the heat and humidity like the heat index, but it also factors in the air movement. And that's important because if it's very, very humid out and there's no air movement, it takes longer for the sweat to evaporate from your body, which means that you're going to stay hot longer. You're going to be oppressed longer than, than you would if that if the air is moving because there's nothing there to, to dry that and wick that away. So that's actually a measurement that is used by the military. It's used by most professional sports organizations. And it because it has that that truer figure, it's it's allowing for that the that other variable of being able to wick that perspiration away from your body. Both um, are good indicators and good baselines, but there are other factors to to include as well, of course. But obviously you don't want to just look at the forecast and say, oh, it's going to be 78 degrees today, so it shouldn't be too bad. Because if it's exactly. 78 degrees and it's 80% humidity, then that's a whole different ball game. Exactly. I'm I'm in Pennsylvania, and for the past two days, it's been 79 degrees, but the humidity has been more than 90%. Yeah. And it has felt pretty oppressive, even though I wouldn't generally think of 79 degrees as being very hot. It's just that that humidity really really does play a factor. Yeah, I'm I'm a runner, and you know, it it's such a huge difference when it's dry out as opposed to you know a, a high humidity day. It just it just saps the life out of you. So. Uh, Absolutely. I can imagine that it's even worse if you're, you know, out at a construction site for eight hours, uh, you know, doing heavy, uh, heavy labor. Um, so explain a little bit about acclimation and why that's uh, so important. Acclimation is really important and it's something that I, I think as I mentioned before, we overlook, especially if we have a workforce that has been doing the same job for a number of years. Acclimation is, is really a key to it because when you allow a person to acclimate and when they are fully acclimated to an environment, they're able to sweat more effectively. And that's important because they'll sweat sooner. And of course we know that sweating is, is one of your body's reflexes, that it's a way that your body, a mechanism that your body uses to cool down. So we, we need to sweat when we're hot. That, that's very important to maintain that core temperature. So if we're able to sweat sooner, then we're able to cool ourselves sooner and, and maintain that core temperature better. We also have less electrolyte loss. So your body recognizes this this heat stress, this this heat and humidity as a factor and they're going to you're not going to blow through your electrolytes as quickly. So you won't need to replenish them as quickly. And that's important because the electrolytes are, are helping to to stabilize your system. So when you don't lose this as quickly, you're able to, to keep your stamina a lot better. So so in one thing being acclimated, sweating more effectively, effectively is one. And also you're going to per perform your duties, your, your, your labors at, at a better heart rate and also a lower core temperature. So being, being a runner, you probably understand that uh, very well. You want to, you want, to, you don't want your core temperature to rise because once your core temperature rises, it starts to set off all those heat stress symptoms. It starts to reduce that blood flow. It starts to reduce those cognitive functions. So being able to maintain that lower core temperature through acclimating is going to help you be able to stay on the job longer 
and, and perform better. Again, not that you're Superman, not that you can last three hours, but if you're, if, if the heat index or that wet bulb globe temperature sets that recommendation level at working 30 minutes and resting 30 minutes, you're good to do that. If it's 45, 15, whatever those intervals are, you're going to be safer doing that at a lower core temperature. And the final thing is just keeping that, being able, being acclimated helps to increase your blood flow and stabilize your circulation. Again, both important factors when we're talking about keeping somebody out of risk for heat stress injury. Um, and how important is it to kind of understand the health history of your workers uh, as you, you know, as you, you know, you have two workers side by side, but if one has got heart, heart issues or, you know, uh, other, other issues that can be, you know, more affected by the heat, then you've got a bigger problem there, right? Exactly. And that's something that it, it's hard because we don't always know a person's full medical history and heart conditions can affect it. Being pregnant can affect it. Anything, anything cardiovascular, because of course your heart is, is in charge of the circulation. So anything that would do that, anything that uh, would affect a person's uh, respiratory system, because if your if your lungs aren't aren't able to work correctly, that can affect it. If any if you have anybody with diabetes, anything that would cause them to be on a blood thinner, anything that would cause them to be on a water pill, uh, just all of the all of those things. Age can be a factor, as, as I've mentioned earlier, and even even if you have somebody who's coming back from a recent illness. Like right now, we have people coming back from COVID. A lot of them have have been dehydrated through that. They've they've had issues with that. Be anybody who's had a fever recently, anybody who has uh, had a sickness that has caused a lot of vomiting, those things can all dehydrate us and and they affect our system. So even if they were acclimated before, if they've had that extended illness, if they've been out for three to five days or a week, they may need to reacclimate because their their body just isn't isn't conditioned like it was before that illness. So a lot of different health things can go into making a worker who should be acclimated uh, not really have those benefits. And I think as you mentioned earlier, you know, these are, these are things, it's just another reason for, you know, a supervisor to really keep an eye out for those warning signs of heat stress. Cause you might have a worker who really needs a job and, you know, thinks they can push through it when really they, they should probably take a break for a little while. Exactly. And that's something that we really see with agriculture workers. They come in and they, will just, they'll work crazy long hours, 12 to 14 hours a day because picking crops out in the sun, direct sun all day, because they, they need to support their families. And, and they quite often, unfortunately, are paid by, by the court, by the pipe, by the bushel, whatever, whatever the picking unit is. And they will just put, put their health aside to try to make that extra bushel pint pound or whatever because they, they need to, to provide for their families. And that's unfortunate. And, and that's where supervisors are essential when they're the, and their job needs to be to be there to keep an eye on those people. And that's something that uh, was in both, of, both the House and the Senate bills 
was that there would need to be a supervisor whose duty is to watch people and, and look for signs of those illnesses. And speaking of illnesses, and you, you mentioned COVID-19, how is COVID and the protections that it requires, how, how has that complicated things for workers in the heat? You know, if they have to wear a mask or, or you know, uh, other kinds of protection. Right. That's what you consider these these workers. They they really are conditioned like professional athletes. They're doing heavy labor. They're climbing things. They're digging things. They're building things. They're they're not sitting at a desk all day where where they can kind of you know, let things slide where, yes, nobody likes to wear a mask, but you can do it. So when you when you factor in they're doing this hard job that's that's hard on your body anyway. You add the heat and humidity, which doesn't help. You've got to keep hydration up and, and now you're adding a mask. It's it's just one more element that's that's adding resistance for them. So it's definitely a factor. And and you also have to factor in, you know, besides wearing that mask, COVID has done a lot to to stress just everything else that we do. Our our families are operating differently. We have yeah more to do, less to do. We, we've got yeah, a lot of different family issues. So, so that plays in as well. So even, even if you took away wearing the mask, you still have that additional stress of, of everything else that COVID has brought onto us. But definitely a factor and definitely something that if you were an employer who had a plan before and that plan didn't include somebody having the resistance of wearing a mask, that you may want to look at again and add that in as a factor and maybe maybe you need to increase that rest break maybe you need to increase that cooling break so that so that um they do have a little more rest and and reprise from wearing that mask absolutely well it sounds like there's a lot more awareness about heat stress uh, out there now so hopefully that'll make a difference going forward and I think that is a good thing is that a lot of prominent agencies, groups, industry leaders have put the focus on that. As I mentioned earlier, there are a number of industry groups who have kind of made that a campaign. And even NIOSH and OSHA, they got together to create an app that tells you the heat index. Again, not maybe not as, as convincing as the wet bulb globe temperature, but it's at least something that anybody can pull up. And whether they're an employee or a supervisor, it at least gives them some basic guidelines. And, and even for anybody who is in a position, if you're a safety professional and you're being charged with writing a plan, there are a lot of great templates out there that you can pick and choose from and create a plan that's really reflective of your workforce. So I think with that, with the focus from the industry groups, and from those professional organizations, there's a lot of great, there are a lot of great tools out there now that weren't there even five or six years ago. Excellent. Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. This was very, uh, very enlightening. Thank you, Jay. And that wraps up episode 76 of EHS on Tap. You can find more information about EHS on Tap and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time.